All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the Gospel of Luke. We are continuing through this series of snapshots, looking at Luke's various trials or interrogations might be a better word. And in this recording, we're going to be looking at Luke 23, verses 1 through 25. It's Jesus' trial before Pilate, and then Herod, and then back to Pilate again. And just setting that again in context so we don't forget where we're at, Jesus was arrested late at night in the Garden of Gethsemane up on the Mount of Olives, and he was brought down the mountain and into the city and to the high priest's house. And it's in the courtyard of the high priest where Peter disowned Jesus three times before the rooster crowed. In the morning, uh, a more formal assembly of Jewish leaders convened in their council chambers in the temple to formalize charges against Jesus. And those charges focus specifically on Jesus' identity as the Messiah, as King. Well, now, feeling certain within themselves that they have established Jesus' guilt, the Jewish leadership escorts Jesus and takes the case to Pilate. And the reason for that was because Pilate was the Roman governor and the Romans are the only ones who legally had the right of capital punishment. And that's how they want to get rid of Jesus. And so here's what happens. Verse 1 of chapter 23, Then the entire assembly of them, that is of the Jewish leadership, set out and brought Jesus before Pilate. And they began to bring charges against him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation for, and forbidding us to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. Now, Pilate was the Roman governor of Judea from about 26 to 36. And the seat of Roman government in Judea was the city of Caesarea on the sea, oh, about 60 miles kind of northwest of Jerusalem. But Pilate usually came to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration as a means of helping maintain order, and he brought with him uh, extra troops, extra forces to keep things kind of under control because the, the Romans were well aware of what Passover meant to the Jews because of all the extra people piling into the city, because it was a liberation celebration and the hostility and hatred towards the Jews. So here's Pilate in Jerusalem during the Passover celebration. And under Roman rule, the Romans alone had the power of capital punishment. So taking Jesus to Pilate was really a necessary legal step for them to, to be rid of Jesus. And notice what the charges are. The charges are stated in terms that would resonate with the Romans. Uh, Jesus is charged with leading the nation, Israel, astray. This is general, but to the Roman ears, this would communicate anti-Roman sentiment. Uh, the charges also include forbidding to pay taxes. There had been tax revolts in the past. The Romans knew how really kind of onerous the tax system was to the Jews and how much it, it just reminded them of their state of being. And so since there had been plenty of tax revolts, right? But this was a complete lie. In fact, earlier that week, the Jews had sent people to ask Jesus about this and ask if he forbid people paying taxes, and Jesus avoided that uh, trap by his answer about render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And so this charge is a complete falsehood, a complete lie. And then the other charge is uh, that Jesus claims to be Christ, Messiah, King. 
And this really is the charge that's at the heart of it. Remember that Messiah means anointed as king, and so for the Romans, this implies disloyalty to Caesar. Rome understood what this meant to the Jews, and they knew it was really a charge of treason and sedition and revolt against the emperor himself in Rome. It's this latter charge, then, that Pilate focuses on in his investigation of Jesus. And so verse 3 says, Now Pilate asked him, that is, asked Jesus, saying, So, you are the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, said, It is as you say. Pilate drills down on this one charge because this really is the centerpiece. And Perhaps he had investigated the other things a little bit. But remember, Luke is telling his story in such a way to help us see this is the heart of it. This is the real issue. Luke wants us to know that the thing that got Jesus killed is his claim to be the king of the Jews, the Messiah. And so he focuses on that here. And he has Pilate asking Jesus this question. And as Pilate asks him that, Jesus answers, it is as you say, or you say it. And Jesus' answer is a bit ambiguous. Literally, that you say it could be a form of agreement. Yes, it's what you say. Or it could be a way of being dismissive. Well, it's whatever you say. But to us as readers of Luke's gospel who have followed along the story of Jesus all the way through, we know a couple things. First, we know that Jesus knows he's the Messiah. He's the king. He's asserted that. He knows that. That's a big deal to him. He just asserted that in the previous investigation with the Jewish leadership. So we know he knows that. And second, we also know that uh, being the Messiah to Jesus doesn't mean what everyone else thinks it means. And so it doesn't mean what the charges imply and what Pilate would assume. So when Jesus says, you say it, we would assume it's, it's uh, affirmative. He's agreeing. He knows he's the Messiah. It's just that it means something different than what Pilate assumes. Well, as Pilate examines Jesus... He doesn't see any evidence of Jesus being a political firebrand, some sort of revolutionary. So he says this, verse 4, Now Pilate said to the chief priests and to the crowd, so the Jewish leadership and whatever Jewish crowds are gathered around at this point, Pilate said, I find no grounds for charges in the case of this man. Jesus doesn't have a reputation for fomenting rebellion. His words and his manner give no appearance of being a militant, military, some sort of rebellious uh, revolutionary. Pilate can discern that he's innocent of these charges. So he says, there's no basis to the charges in this man. But that doesn't silence the Jewish leaders. Verse 5, they kept on insisting, saying, he is stirring up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, as far as this place. Once again, this is implying rebellion. He's stirring up the people. His teaching is inviting rebellion. That's the implied accusation. That's the real issue. And Romans were very leery of this. They did everything they could to keep the peace. The well-known Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, was enforced by strong military might that would put down any hint of rebellion and do so often in very brutal ways. So, that's the implication, even though it's clearly obviously false. 
Now, what's interesting, though, is when they say starting from Galilee, that catches Pilate's attention because Galilee is under Herod's jurisdiction. So look what happens. Verse 6. Now, when Pilate heard this, heard specifically about Galilee, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent Jesus to Herod since Herod was also in Jerusalem at this time. Remember, it's the festival. Everyone's coming here. So Herod's here as well. And this Herod is Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. He ruled as Tetrarch over Galilee and the other region called Perea, which is just east of the Jordan River. So he was Tetrarch over Galilee and Perea, and he ruled that realm from the time of his father's death around 4 BC until about AD 39. In fact, this is the same Herod who had John the Baptist killed. So he's in Jerusalem at this time. He is over Galilee, which means Galilee is his jurisdiction. And so Pilate's like, I'm just hoping to offload this case at this point. So he sends Jesus to Herod. Now, Herod, verse 8, was overjoyed when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. And so notice that Herod's just happy and excited to see Jesus because he wants to see a magic trick. He wants to see some parlor tricks, some miracle performed by him. Like, whoa, that's awesome. And so he's excited to see Jesus. And so Jesus is sent to him. And verse 9, he questioned him at some length. So he spent some time questioning him, interrogating him. But Jesus offered him no answer at all. Jesus sat silent and gave him nothing, doesn't answer him. The Jewish leaders, however, kept arguing their case. Verse 10, now the chief priests and the scribes stood there vehemently charging him. And Herod, together with his soldiers, treated Jesus with contempt and mocked him. And so here in Herod's, wherever he's staying, Herod's palace there in Jerusalem, um, he's got some soldiers along with him, and they are ridiculing and mocking and treating Jesus with contempt. And Luke describes one of the things they did in their mockery of Jesus, dressing him in a brightly shining robe and then sent him back to Pilate. The idea of brightly shining probably is language that just refers to meaning regal, right? The point is to mock his kingship. Oh, he thinks he's the king of the Jews. Let's put him in some regal robes. And then, you know, so they are mocking his kingship. And then Luke throws in a little editorial aside in verse 12. He says, and so Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day, for previously they had been enemies towards each other. Presumably, you know, this, this joint disdain for Jesus, this sense of this case with the Jews and not wanting to deal with it, right, somehow brought them together and they at least uh, became, in some sense, friends that very day as a result of Jesus. And so uh, now Jesus being sent back to Pilate, he is uh, back across town, they go back to Pilate, verse 13. Now Pilate summoned to himself the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and he said to them, you brought this man to me on the ground that he is inciting the people to revolt. That's the issue. He's a king, and he's inciting a revolution. And behold, Pilate says, after examining him before you, I have found no basis at all in the case of this man for the charges which you're bringing against him. Nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. 
these words of Pilate really emphasizes Jesus' innocence. Pilate can see it. Herod can see it. He's not inciting a revolt. So Pilate offers to appease the Jewish leaders by punishing him and releasing him. In other words, he he wants to beat him in some way to teach him a lesson and to appease the Jews. Uh, But that's not enough for for the Jewish leaders. And so look what happens. Verse 17. Now, he was obligated to release to them at the feast one prisoner. But they cried out all together, saying, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas. He was one who had been thrown into prison for a revolt that took place in the city and for murder. Just a couple little technical notes. If you pay close attention to verse 17, you notice that it's in brackets again. We talked about this in a previous session where being in brackets indicates that it's not in some of the earliest manuscripts. And so textual critics try to discern is that uh, original or not. And verse 17, the evidence seems to point in the direction of, no, nah, it's not in the original. It probably was added to Luke's account since there's something like it in Matthew and Mark's version of this story. And it was a way of explaining why verse 18 is there where they demand for uh, the release of Barabbas. With, so it's kind of a little explanatory extra that's thrown in there based on Matthew and Mark. That's the way it seems, at least. The main thing here is, in verse 18, they asked for Barabbas. Barabbas is already in prison, and he's in prison specifically in connection with a revolt and murder. So the very charges they're trying to trump up on Jesus, Barabbas has actually done, and he's in prison for it. So they choose a known insurrectionist to go free over Jesus, which just proves the hypocrisy of their charges. Verse 20 then, Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again. But they kept on crying out saying, crucify, crucify him. And so the situation escalates here. Perhaps they could sense that Pilate was about to give in. Perhaps they... Right, like they, they sensed that they needed to up the ante a bit. And so now they call out not just the charges, but the desired punishment. And the desired punishment is crucifixion, a punishment that the Romans use for the worst criminals as a way of saying to anyone else, look what happens when you cross our authority. And that's what they're crying for is use your power, use your authority, Pilate, to crucify this man. Pilate protest in verse 22. And he said to them a third time, why? What has this man done wrong? I have found in his case no grounds for a sentence of death. Therefore, I'll punish him and release him. So once again, he tries to subdue the crowd with a a beating and then let Jesus go. But they were insistent in verse 23 with loud voices demanding that he be crucified and their voices began to prevail. And so their voices won out. Their voices drowned out Pilate. Their voices drowned out the voice of reason and honesty. And so they won. And Pilate, therefore, gives in to their demand for Jesus to be crucified, verse 24. And so Pilate decided to have their demand carried out. And he released the man for whom they were asking, who had been thrown into prison for a revolt and murder, but he handed Jesus over to their will. Luke's telling of this story culminates by highlighting the irony. A known insurrectionist is set free and Jesus is led off to be crucified. Now, one commentator points out that Luke's trial scene shows the guilt of all 
everybody involved, and the innocence of Jesus, the guilt of the Jewish leadership, their hypocrisy, their willingness to break their own laws, right? Pilate's willingness to give in to the people and not uh, defend the innocent, right? So the Jewish leaders don't care about truth or facts. They just want Jesus gone. Pilate and Herod mock Jesus and capitulate to the crowd of his accusers. Twice, Barabbas is described as leading a revolt and committing murder. And so in a beautiful narrative twist, Luke shows us what Jesus' death means. Jesus is condemned, uh, even though he's innocent, and the guilty go free. This scene portrays just as clearly as the Apostle Paul's straightforward statement that there, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Or elsewhere where Paul says that he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In our own ways, we're all Barabbas. Uh, and this story makes it very clear what the death of Jesus means. The innocent is condemned so that the guilty can go free. Also, I think another reflection from this, this episode we should notice is that this scene fulfills God's plans. Human folly, human wickedness, human choices. God can and does use even those things for his purposes. Like, they are making their choices. They're fulfilling their character, right? They're making their own plans in their own foolishness. But God has the power to use that to achieve his will. And Luke brings all of this together, really, in Peter's speech in Acts chapter 2, where Peter holds God's sovereignty and human responsibility together. And he does so in the temple in Jerusalem in the hearing of some of these very same people. He says, Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And so this was God's plan according to God's foreknowledge. But notice what Peter says there in Acts 2. He says, and yet you nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Notice that God's plan and foreknowledge, human responsibility brought together in one statement in Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. Praise God that he has the power to use evil for good, that he has the sovereignty to triumph over wickedness. Hey, the listener's commentary on the New Testament is a crowd-funded Bible teaching effort made possible by the generosity of people just like you. So thank you. Your generosity is making a difference in the lives of people all around the world. And if you've been blessed by this ministry in some way and want to join the team of supporters, I would love to have you on the team. Swing on over to the listenerscommentary.com slash give, and you can set up a recurring monthly donation right there, or the link to that is just down in the notes below. God bless you guys, and thanks a ton for your support.